Welcome back, Hemingway Brains, to Book 13, Chapter 16. Why do you think the real heroes of this war go unpraised and forgotten? Why is Tolstoy so intent on pointing them out? And have you ever related to the description, he was one of those inconspicuous gears which without clatter or noise constitute the most essential part of the machine? Have you ever felt that way in your own life? Essential but unnoticed. Wap, wap, wap away says, Our society is full of those. Janitors, nurses, garbage truck drivers, the list is endless, although they aren't so much unnoticed as they are outright despised. It almost seems as a punishment to do any of those jobs. You've failed at life if you're making a living by being one of the most important people in the society. But there are also jobs where people won't notice you if you're good at your job. One that immediately comes to mind is CGI artists for movies. Everyone can point out when they do a bad job, but I don't think most people realise just how much CGI is in movies these days. And I'm not talking about explosions or big monsters or such, but small things like particle effects and backgrounds. A lot of CGI. You know, there's... Um, like those new Marvel films, they're not even that new, but I'm just thinking of like Endgame and stuff. Well, I mean, you know, when you see Thanos or the Hulk, you know that's CGI. But beyond that, like, even the there's parts where, like, the superheroes are in some kind of suits. And they didn't even get the actors to wear those suits to act the parts. So, like, the clothes on the people are sometimes CGI'd onto the people, which I just find crazy. Uh, Acoustic Eel says this. Yes, I relate to this. I'm a pianist who does a lot of accompanying, mainly for choirs and singers. My main goal for a performance is, so, is to integrate my playing in, into the impulse of the singer or the conducting of the choir director. If I'm doing my job well, no one should really notice me playing because I'm so united with the expression of the principal performer. If I get out of sync, the other performers now notice my piano part more and have to spend brain power thinking about that, which distracts them from their singing. So I have to play, but at the same time not draw too much attention. It's a subtle skill and one that I pride myself on because even good pianists can't always accompany well. Wow, I've never heard of that description before. That's amazing, acoustic eels. I love that. Also, you can say the shh combination as sh. That's basically how it's pronounced in Russian. Well, thank you very much. That description of accompanying choir singers is so cool. I've never thought about how, you know, you're not just playing along. You don't have to just play in time. It's more like playing in sync, in, in um, well, I was going to say in harmony, but it's not about the, the notes harmonizing. It's about... Um, some kind of synchronicity and meeting the mood, meeting the tone, everything. That's really cool. Uh, Winter Night says, I consider it unsung heroes. Oh, sorry, IT unsung heroes in business. They don't directly bring in money to a company, but they spend quite a bit. Their focus is ensuring the rest of the company runs smoothly. When they aren't effective, the company can feel it. Or, unfortunately, they are also a first choice to outsource, which can be harmful to a company because they won't get the same level of support. There are never accolades for an effective IT department. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think a lot of behind the scenes jobs, you know, they get more noticed when they don't work than when they do work. Probably could be said for a lot of jobs. Interesting discussion, though. Okay, what what are we up to here? Chapter 17, book 13, chapter XVII. Did I get that right? I think I got it right. Uh, XVII, yeah, that's 17. Still not good with Roman numerals. Okay, it goes like this. Kutuzov, like all old people, did not sleep much at night. He fell asleep unexpectedly in the daytime, but at night, which, lying on his bed without undressing, he generally remained awake thinking. So, he lay now on his bed, supporting his large, heavy, scarred head on his plump hand, with his one eye open, meditating and peering into the darkness. Since Bennigsen, who corresponded with the Emperor and had more influence than anyone else on the staff, had begun to avoid him, Kutuzov was more at ease as to the possibility of himself and his troops being obliged to take part in useless, aggressive movements. The lesson of the Tarotino battle, and of the day before it, which Kutuzov remembered with pain, must, he thought, have some effect on others too. They must understand that we can only lose by taking the offensive. Patience and time are my warriors, my champions, thought Kutuzov. He knew that an apple should not be plucked while it is green. It will fall off of itself when ripe, but if picked unripe, the apple is spoiled, the tree is harmed, and your teeth are set on edge. Like an, un- like an experienced sportsman, he knew that the beast was wounded, and wounded as only the whole strength of Russia could have wounded it, but whether it was mortally wounded or not was still an undecided question. Now, by the fact of Lauriston and Bartholomew having been sent, and by the reports of the guerrillas, Kutuzov was almost sure that the wound was mortal, but he needed future proofs, and it was necessary to wait. They want to run to see how they have wounded it. Wait, and we shall see. Continual manoeuvres, continual advances, thought he. What for? Only to distinguish themselves, as if fighting were fun. They're like children, from whom one can't get any sensible account of what has happened because they all want to show how well they can fight. But that's not what is needed now. And what ingenious manoeuvres they all propose to me, it seems to them that when they have thought of two or three contingencies, you remember the plan, the general plan sent to him from Petersburg, they think they have foreseen everything but the contingencies are endless. The undecided question as to whether the wound inflicted at Borodino was mortal or not had hung over Kutuzov's head for a whole month. On the one hand, the French had occupied Moscow. On the other, Kutuzov felt assured with all his being that the terrible blow into which he and all the Russians had put their whole strength must have been mortal. But in any case, proofs were needed. He had waited a whole month for them, and grew more impatient the longer he waited. Lying on his bed during those sleepless nights, he did just what he reproached those younger generals for doing. He imagined all sorts of possible contingencies, just like the younger men, but with this difference that he saw thousands of contingencies instead of two or three, and based nothing on them.
The longer he thought, the more contingencies presented themselves. He imagined all sorts of movements of the Napoleonic army as a whole or in sections against Petersburg or against him or to outflank him. He thought, too, of the possibility, which he feared most of all, that Napoleon might fight him on, with his own weapon and remain in Moscow awaiting him. Kutuzov even imagined that Napoleon's army might turn back through Medin and Yukhnov, but the one thing he could not foresee was what happened. The insane, convulsive stampede of Napoleon's army during its first 11 days after leaving Moscow, a stampede which made possible what Kutuzov had not yet even dared to think of, the complete extermination of the French. Dorokov's report about Brossier's division the guerrillas' reports of distress in Napoleon's army, rumours of preparations for leaving Moscow, all confirmed the supposition that the French army was beaten and preparing for flight. But these were only suppositions, which seemed important to the younger men, but not to Kutuzov. With his sixty years' experience, he knew what value to attach to rumours, knew how apt people who desire anything are to group all news so that it appears to confirm what they desire, and he knew how readily in such cases they omit all that makes for the contrary. And the more he desired it, the less he allowed himself to believe it. This question absorbed all his mental powers. All else was to him only life's customary routine. To such customary, customary routine belonged his conversations with the staff. The letters he wrote from Tarutino to Madame de Stael the reading of novels, the distribution of awards, his correspondence with Petersburg, and so on. But the destruction of the French, which he alone foresaw, was his heart's one desire. On the night of the 11th of October, he lay leaning on his arm and thinking of that. There was a stir in the next room, and he heard the steps of Toll, <coughs> excuse me, Konovsnitsyn and Bokhovitinov. Uh, who's there? Come in, come in. What news? The field mark. Oh, God. The field marshal called out to them. Oh, now I've got the hiccups. <clears throat> While a footman was lighting a candle, Toll communicated the substance of the news. Who brought it? asked Kutuzov, with a look which, when the candle was lit, struck Toll by its cold severity. There can be no doubt about it, Your Highness. Call him in. Call him here. Kutuzov sat up with one leg hanging down from the bed and his big paunch resting against the other, which was doubled under him. He screwed up his seeing eye to scrutinise the messenger more carefully, as if wishing to read in his face what preoccupied his own mind. Tell me, tell me, friend, said he to Bolkovinov in a low-aged voice, as he pulled together the shirt which gaped open on his chest. Come nearer, nearer. What news have you brought me, hey? That Napoleon has left Moscow, are you sure, hey? Bolkovinov gave a detailed account of the beginning of all he had been told to report, Speak quicker. Quicker. Don't torture me, Kutuzov interrupted him. Bolkotinov told him everything and was then silent, awaiting instructions. Toll was beginning to say something, but Kutuzov checked him. He tried to say something, but his face suddenly puckered and wrinkled. He waved his arm at Toll and turned to the opposite side of the room, to the corner darkened by the icons that hung there. O oh Lord, my Creator, thou hast heard our prayer, said he in a tremulous voice, which with folded hands. Russia is saved. I thank thee, O Lord. And he wept. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Kutuzov, weeping with joy. Alright.
have your say about it on the subreddit and I'll see you tomorrow.